Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 38 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialist R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. Our guests over the next 30 minutes or so include Tracy Hassett, president of Ed Health, a Vermont group captive funding medical stop loss for educational institutions across the United States, and Thomas Keist, global captive solutions leader at Swiss Re Corporate Solutions. Thomas is a part of a workshop I am moderating at Air Fest on 23rd September, all about virtual captives and why the concept is making a bit of a comeback in this market. More information on that presentation and how you can attend later in the episode. But first, our guest co-host for GTP38 is Zach Finn, Clinical Professor and Director of the Davy Risk Management and Insurance Program at Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana. Zach, welcome to the pod. Happy to be joining you on a beautiful uh, September day here in Indianapolis. Fantastic. It's a beautiful September day here in the Cotswolds in Gloucestershire, England as well. So uh, snap to that one. Mm -hmm. Um, Zach, can you start perhaps by telling us a little bit about Butler, the institution and and your role there? Yeah. So Butler is a a, a traditional residential uh, private college here in the U.S. Um, We're located in Indianapolis, Indiana founded in the late 1800s. But one of the great things about Butler, I think we were one of the the first university, I think, to have a tenured female professor. We were founded with a very abolitionist mindset and with a a goal of inclusion and opportunity for all. So that's a really great um, legacy that Butler uh, started with and continues to embody today. But uh, we have approximately 4,600 students here on campus. So my role here is I'm a professor in our insurance and risk program. I'm qualified to teach a number of classes like employee benefits and intro to risk management, but I typically specialize in commercial property and casualty insurance. And, and then I, I teach all of our captive classes. So we use our captive insurance company as a teaching tool. And we have been doing that in the undergraduate program for a number of years now. And actually, we are piloting the use of the captive in our master's program as we speak. So in addition to being a professor, I'm technically the chief risk officer and chief underwriting officer of the MJ student-run captive domiciled in Bermuda. One of the reasons that really prompted me to invite you onto the pod as, as one of our guest co-hosts was a was a was a very short LinkedIn exchange that we had as we both responded, you know, both I think a little bit bemused to a series of headlines and speeches from conferences claiming that pandemics were quote uninsurable and it that's a very nice sexy thing to say and it gets lots of attention when you say something is uninsurable uh, particularly people like to say that at things like captive conferences i think why do you think though that the idea of pandemics being uninsurable has has uh, become quite a common mantra and and why do you do you think that's wrong yeah well i definitely do think it's wrong i i think it's i think it's a function of a lot of things i mean to be fair pandemics are very difficult to insure I mean, there are there are the certain tenets of insurability that must exist in order for something to be insurable. One of them is you have to have a large group subject to the same peril or, or group of exposures. And, you know, in this instance, we, we don't necessarily know who is an essential or a non-essential business. Um, you have to understand, you know, both the be able to measure both the, the probability and severity of an event. We don't really have, you know, good data on, on the probability of another pandemic or the continuation of this pandemic. We don't know the severity of it yet, by the way. Whether or not pandemics are uninsurable really, I think, comes down to whether or not we would ever shut down again the way we did in March and April. And if, in fact, that is an option that is, is on the table and perhaps would be used frequently, then perhaps they are uninsurable. But, but the question is, we don't know that yet. 
The other challenge is when you spread risk, you really try to spread it across policyholders. And, and this is one of those claims where, you know, or instances where, you know, you could have a situation where everybody's having a claim at the same time. So to be fair, that does make it very challenging to insure, but it, it by no means makes it impossible to insure. I mean, I was taught at Indiana State by Dr. Marianne Boos that anything is insurable as long as two things exist. One, someone's willing to pay the premium and whatever you're doing is not illegal. So, I, you know, again, what's insurable is a matter of perspective, right? If you're an, if you're an insurance company, and you're sitting on 300 legacy systems, you've got a bunch of potential losses related to this, you've got potential litigation related to this, you've got potential you know, lobbying you're going to have to continue to do with the state legislators to make sure that they don't retroactively force coverage on you. I mean, that's a, that's a very challenging position to find yourself in and, and to be able to figure out a way to ensure this going forward can be very hard when that's, that's kind of the landscape you're starting with. Because I think the industry is saying pandemics are uninsurable because they're afraid of the litigation from COVID-19. I think that they're scared of losing in court and having coverage apply retroactively for this pandemic. I think there's some real concern of that. 80% of policies are silent on, on virus and communicable disease exclusions. The ISO exclusion itself is, I believe, silent on property damage. And I think the, du- the industry didn't meet the duty of reasonable expectations about communicating these exclusions in the first place. And so, you know, you put these exclusions in a policy that have the effect of basically ruining most of the global economy, catching most business owners and insurers completely flat-footed and surprised. And then you're going to say, well, we didn't advertise about this. We didn't have the license exams, but, you know, we, you should have known. Should they have? I mean, is that really fair? And so I think in order to protect their past, they're sacrificing their future. It's a lot easier to say, I don't, you know, how, how could you expect to have coverage for COVID-19 when pandemics are on a terrible period for now forever? And so I think, and, and, I, and I've had some of the associations say that, like, look, insurance is so complicated. People don't understand it. There is a lot of nuances about whether pandemics were, are, or could be insurable, but most people don't understand that. So it's just a lot easier to say, ah, it's uninsurable. And, and it's a lot easier to position yourself in court to say, well, geez, how could this be covered in the past without even intend to cover it in the future? Now, the problem with that is insurability is a matter of perspective, right? And that's one of the lessons I learned being the risk manager smucker when we had a billion dollar coffee plant and, you know, we had uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of flood exposure and you go, you go scour the planet, you go to Lloyd's of London, and you get all the flood insurance that's available and you find out it's 50 million bucks. And from the insurance industry's perspective, they, they, they kind of wash their hands and say, well, there's your 50 billion bucks. See you. We're going to go have a pint. Uh, I guess the rest of your exposure is uninsurable. Well, uninsurable to them, but not to me. Right. I still got a coffee plant to run. Now, again, you know, hypothetically, this is for Smucker to deal with now. But at the time, we still had a coffee plant to run. We still have to have we still have, you know, contingent liability of hundreds of millions of dollars for floods that could happen. And so what that means is, is, is when the when the insurance industry checks out and says the job's over, there's no more coverage. Guess what risk managers do? They invent it. That's what we're forced to do. We're forced to invent coverage. You know, if you've invented a hoverboard or an autonomous vehicle, you're going to have to invent the insurance for that at the same time. And, and that's increasingly where we're finding ourselves in this new economy is people are doing things so new and so innovative. There's not even any existing insurance for it to begin with. So they might as well invent it themselves. That's why I think the industry's challenge is by saying in, in the pandemics are uninsurable. What it's going to force to do is it's going to force large corporations and trade associations to cannibalize all the other insurable risks in order to create their own portfolios to where they can provide themselves with pandemic coverage. We, we actually had a, a, an episode of, of the podcast back in May, I think it was, with uh, friends of the podcast, Marsh, Captive Solutions, uh, talking about uh, captives and pandemics, but also they mentioned in that that they have been 
offering, along with Munich Re, I believe, a, a pandemic product for the last two or three years prior to COVID-19, and, and very few people wanted to buy it. So there was already pro- some products available, whether they were fit for purpose, people might look back and question, I'm not sure, but there was products on the market. And when you talked about insurance buyers inventing the coverage if they can't get it in the market. That's exactly what Ward Ching from Aon was talking about in an episode, I think GCP 35, regarding the tech, you know, the, the big tech companies coming out of the West Coast. Talking about uninsurable, uh, though, or quotes uninsurable, there's been obviously developments in Congress or efforts to develop a pandemic equivalent to TRIA, imaginatively titled PRIA for Pandemic Risk Insurance Act. And Zach, you've been providing quite a bit of commentary in, in the national press on this. You know, there was coverage for pandemics in the past. You're right. I was looking at it as far back as 2010. But, you know, to the extent that the NCAA had coverage for COVID for this year's shutdown of the NCAA, I don't see how that exists in the future. Right. I mean, there are there are people writing it now. I, I know people that are writing parametric triggered indemnity policies at you know, very high rate on lines. And, and that's a, a potential solution. But but again, that's kind of ad hoc. And, and I think in order to really have a solution that works for everybody, that works for all the non-essential businesses in Main Street and in, in middle America, there does have to be that federal government backstop. And I, I think that there are a couple of things that are preventing that from happening. One is is everybody's focused on emergency response, right? There's four phases to a crisis. There's preparedness, there's emergency response, there's continuity, and there's restoration. And and right now, 90-some percent of America's bandwidth is focused on emergency response and, and maybe continuing what operations we have in some kind of capacity. There's not enough people thinking about what comes next. And, and what does the restoration of this country and this economy look like? And I have to ask yourself, you know, if you're a a cruise line, how can you get financing for a ship or maintain your fleet when you don't even know if you're going to sail from one summer to the next? And and who would provide insurance for a cruise line right now in any kind of reasonable way? And then you, and, and one of the other things is, is if you're an essential business, you've learned that, right? You, you don't maybe necessarily need this coverage because you know you're going to always be able to operate if we ever shut down like this again. So in order to get all this right, in order to bring certainty to the markets, there does have to be some sort of federal backstop. Now, in addition to everybody's focus being on emergency response, what else is preventing this from happening? A couple things. Lack of understanding of insurance. For the pandemic, literally, I had sophomores and juniors in my commercial property insurance class, but we, we've been studying this pandemic since the beginning, since fall. And and we spent the last, literally the last unit we covered before that we all shut down was business interruption and whether pandemics would be insurable under a business interruption policy under civil authority. And every single one of my students left for the pandemic knowing that that's generally not going to be insurable. And then we turn on the news and we see the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, commenting that she was not aware pandemics weren't insurable. We have to close the education gap between a sophomore at Butler University and the third most powerful person in the United States government. That can't be allowed to happen. You know, when you look at the Congress during the great financial crisis, and, I'm, and that's going to be relevant to my other example, there are a lot of people in the United States Congress that have very good expertise around finance and you know, all these different things that would allow them to create and vet and bring into to, to legislation, you know, ideas to help with the Great Recession and the financial crisis we had the last time. I don't feel that there are that many people in the United States Congress who are educated enough about insurance to really be able to understand, create, or vet the ideas that are being presented to them. And so what's happening is they're listening to the loudest voices. And, and one of the problems that our industry has is, you know, when you have the Great Financial Crisis in 2008, you largely had the entire financial services industry speaking as, as one voice to one audience, federal regulators. And they were able to create you know, TARP and all these different things. We're, we don't operate that way. We're a very fractured industry. 
right? I've had more than one member of Congress staff and other people kind of laugh when I talk about insurance industry clout in Congress. They're like, they don't have any clout. They're state regulated. All their money and attention goes to the governors and the state legislators. And, 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 and what you're finding is, is Congress is listening to the loudest voices. And so one of the loudest voices out there right now is NAMIC. Um, I love the folks at NAMIC. I think they're a great organization. I think they're doing a fantastic job representing the concerns and views of their members. But I don't think that the concerns and views of their members necessarily are in alignment with the rest of the insurance industry. And the problem is, is there's not there's, there's no unity in the industry, right? That the, NAMIC is saying, and, and the folks that say it's uninsurable say it's really got to be that government-run plan, right? Chubb has a plan that I think is is a little bit more refined and a little bit a little bit more meat on the bones than what kind of the, the current PREA legislation looks like. But honestly, I don't think any of those are the best options. I was one of the first people to call for a Pandemic Risk Insurance Act, and my thinking on that is evolved. There's three ways to spread risk across time, across policyholders, and across other exposures. And and so I don't understand why the government would recreate the wheel. Why not include pandemics as part of the terrorism risk insurance? Why not merge that with the National Flood Insurance Act? And, and, and by doing that, you can address one of those concerns about insurability because you create a soft mandate. If you're, a, if you're an essential business in New York with no flooding exposure, no pandemic exposure, new terrorism coverage, the only way you're going to get it is if you buy is you also kick in for pandemics and flood. If you're a you know coastal business with flood exposure, the only way you're going to get your flood insurance is you kick in for terrorism and pandemics. And so, you know, I think there is that ability in the federal government to think outside the box, to think creatively, to use this this risk and as an opportunity to fix things like like the National Flood Insurance Program. But the problem is Congress doesn't know anything about insurance, largely speaking, relative to be able to have, vet, and bring these ideas to fruition. The insurance industry is fractured as far as what are they're telling the Congress. Um, the loudest voices are not necessarily in alignment with the rest of the industry. And that's creating this situation where, where basically nothing's happening. I want to pick up on a couple of points that you make there. It's, it's very interesting, Zach. One is, it's interesting what you said about almost uh, having people kick in for for TRIA regarding terrorism from, I forgot what the, the flood uh, kind of pool is in America, but the flood risk and obviously for, for, for a PRIA, for a pandemic risk. And I don't know if you've been following what the discussions have been in the UK, but it's around a very similar idea or that's where the industry or many in the industry would like it to go is we already have Paul Ree, which is our equivalent of TRIA. Um, Paul Ree is run as a separate entity, but with obviously funded by the government, it buys reinsurance. It's a, a lot more formal structure, as I understand it, compared to TRIA. And the person that runs Paul Ree and Airmit, the organization that I work for in the UK, are quite keen for the government to go down more of a kind of systemic risk re or a uh, or a cat re, uh, which would actually include pool re, which is a terrorism uh, pandemic re. Uh, we also have uh, flood re, which of course is is a flood backstop. They're all they're all slightly different structure, but the idea would be it would be one larger backstop, which would be talking to all these different systemic risks, which the insurance market, uh, quite frankly, is relatively failing to insure properly. Yeah, and that creates a. I mean, that, think about that. That creates a portfolio. You've got three different nightmare scenarios yeah. in one pool. You don't necessarily have to fund for all three. I mean, God willing, we should not be having three nightmares at the same time. Exactly. And, and that's that's where I think is going in the UK. So whether or not that's how it ends up uh, materializing, it's definitely one to keep an eye on. And it's something we want to be covering on, on the podcast in the future as well. With, with Paul Ree, I think similar to TRIA in the US, captives are actual active members of Paul Ree, just like insurers are active members of Paul Ree. And that would be, I think, something they'd look to replicate with the pandemic Ree if they, if they ran it on a 
along a similar line. Oh, the other thing I'd just like to mention is you mentioned NAMIC a couple of times there and mutual insurers. I'll just clarify for our listeners, NAMIC is the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. So that was probably obvious from, from what Zach was saying, but I just wanted to, to clarify that. Well, um, we're going to talk in the second half a bit about the Butler student-run captive, but now we are going to hear from our own captive owner interview with Tracy Hassett, president of Ed Health. Ed Health was established in Vermont in 2013, but Tracy begins by taking us back to the feasibility period and some of the challenges involved. Looking back now, I, I think it was kind of the who, what, where, when, and why game. And uh, to that, it really started with what is the problem we wanted to address uh, who was interested in participating? Where on earth do we start? When could we start it? And why would we want to take on something so big and complex? So uh, the what, it really boiled down to being the ever-rising cost of employee health care. Uh, the Affordable Care Act was just coming into play. Healthcare costs were rising as a, at an unsustainable rate. And we knew we had to do something in order for the schools to continue to be uh, sustainable going forward. Luckily, the who was a, a pretty easy answer. Uh, 22 colleges and universities in Massachusetts, along with the Davis Foundation, each contributed $50,000 to our efforts to identify a consultant, run feasibility studies to find out how much money could actually be saved by doing something. Uh, this led to the decision to form a medical stop-loss captive along with a consortium where we could all come together, take advantage of our economies of scale in procuring network access and administrative services. And the where was really at that time, we were going to focus on Massachusetts colleges and universities. And we made the decision as part of that feasibility study to domicile the captive in Vermont. The challenges were getting these schools who really wanted to identify a way to save millions of dollars in healthcare costs to actually want to change something. You mentioned, I think, that there are six schools uh, joined as the founder members of Ed Health in, in 2013. How has the, the captive grown since then in the past seven years? And, and has the profile of, of the types of schools uh, membership changed? So this is where I start to get really excited. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we started with six colleges and universities. And again, I mentioned there were 22 who had uh, invested $50,000 each. We knew from the beginning that we weren't going to have 22 schools start in Ed Health. Many of the schools who invested were very, very large schools who were already self-insured and uh, who already had ways in which to save money uh, to include having your own medical centers and, and creating their own programs. So, uh, as you said, we we opened our virtual doors with six colleges and universities. Here we are 
Uh, seven years later, we now have 23 members and owners. Uh, we also made the decision to expand beyond Massachusetts. We're in uh, four states. We're talking to schools across the country. And we've uh, expanded the makeup of the school. So when we first started talking about Ed Health, it, it was a group of administrators from colleges and universities. We're also um, fortunate that we have four charter school members in our area who have joined and are owners of Ed Health. And we're having conversations with several private secondary schools across the country as well. Does, does Ed Health, are they proactive in working with members to, to kind of help on the, on the kind of risk mitigation uh, side of, of the risk? And, and do members share with each other kind of best practice ideas? As a recovering HR professional and one of the individuals who was brought into uh, the formation of Ed Health early on, I am one of those people who relies heavily on networking and sharing of best practices. And as soon as HR individuals were brought into the planning stages of creating Ed Health, there was a natural formation of a networking group and a sharing of best practices, both healthcare and non-healthcare. Now that we're up to 23 members, we do surveys of our members all the time. And when we ask our members, um, what, what can we continue to do? What can we do better? What, what should we stop doing? The number one response we get from our members is that the sharing of best practices and the networking is their favorite part of ed health. And I think that comes out of higher ed naturally. Colleges and universities collaborate naturally. So we've taken that feeling and actually incorporated that more formally so that we can identify ways to control claims costs um, and to keep our faculty, staff, and their family members healthy and at work. Because there is a shared risk in the captive, we all hold each other responsible in, in some way for implementing programs on campus to keep everybody healthy and at work and making sure that employees are, are getting the care that we need. We've implemented some fun opportunities within EdHealth. We have an EdHealth walking challenge every year. A little competition is always good, especially across the campuses. Yeah. Um, yet in a more formal way, we've also brought in some population health management programs that are focused on person-centric care for people who have either chronic disease or individuals who may have high cost claims. We have programs that work with individuals with disease or uh, chronic conditions. We also have a program that focuses on individuals and their families who have high cost claims because we're all in this for the good. We're all in this in the bad. And it's really important for us to stick together uh, in addressing the high cost claims. 
Yeah, that, that shared purpose and, and shared goal is, is really key in group captains. And of course, I imagine that these schools and these members aren't competing with each other, you know, in, in, in any way. So it makes a lot of sense to continue encouraging that that sharing. Well, on the healthcare then, obviously the dreaded dreaded C word of 2020, it wouldn't be an interview without mentioning it, is COVID. Yeah. Um, how how has COVID in, impacted the captive from both a, a risk and in, insurance and an operational perspective? It's it's had a significant increase on Ed Health as as it has on on everybody uh, globally. It, first and foremost, a side effect we never expected: our claims are down almost forty percent this year, and that's a direct result of people not going to the doctors for routine or elective care. That said. As a result of people delaying care, uh, especially those with chronic conditions, we're anticipating an upswing in claims that could exceed what was actually budgeted pre-COVID. With certain chronic conditions, when they're not maintained or treated, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, the exacerbation of those conditions and potentially the comorbidities could have catastrophic impacts on the health and well-being of our patients. Uh, We're also worried about kids who aren't getting their routinely required vaccines. And then, of course, there's there's all of the unknown. We, We don't know when a vaccine will be available. Will people get the vaccine? Will there be another uh, we say another wave of COVID. I don't know that this wave has has come to a close. It, will there be another lockdown? There's just so much uncertainty um, with COVID that uh, we're relying on actuarial models that, from a financial perspective, are ranging anywhere from a decrease of 60% to an increase of 40% in claims costs. And we're just trying to prepare ourselves and our members for all of those potential scenarios. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat. and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent, or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation, or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Well, we will be back with Zach Finn shortly, but next we have a really interesting interview with Thomas Keist, Global Captive Solutions Leader at Swiss Re Corporate Solutions. Thomas, colleague Nigel Bamber and myself will be presenting a workshop all about virtual captives at the upcoming Air Fest, the UK's largest ever online risk and insurance conference. 
Airmit Fest will be held from 22nd to 24th of September and is free to attend for all Airmit members and sponsors. If you are not an Airmic member, then it will cost you just £100 to attend. And importantly, all the content produced for Airmic Fest, including a real variety of short captive presentations, which have been curated by myself, will be available on the platform until March 2021. So there is loads of time to catch up on all of it. You can find out more at airmicfest.com and a link is in this episode description. The session with me, Thomas and Nigel, will be live at 11.30am UK time on Wednesday 23rd of September. So I caught up with Thomas to tell us a bit more about virtual captive captives and beginning with exactly what they are. A virtual captive is number one for those uh, clients who have decided that the captive approach to risk financing is what they need. So that's number one. And then if they have decided that a virtual captive comes into play if you look for alternatives to setting up a real captive and that can be for various reasons the most obvious one is the one that uh, you know setting up a captive and running it is costly and has some complexities number one and uh, number two also you have basically when you want to uh, exit again from a captive it is again a complex process and uh, therefore you know need some consideration whether you really want to be in that for the long term and with a virtual captive it's an easy exit because at the end of the day it's an insurance agreement and you can just not renew it in terms of those those companies that might already have a captive you know large accounts for example but also some medium size business if you've already got a captive can a virtual captive be used as an additional complementary tool or should it be viewed more as an either or approach so maybe actually the the standalone captive isn't working for you for whatever reason but a virtual captive uh, may well be suitable so we have actually a lot of inquiries from clients who have decided that they want to set up a captive but they are maybe short on time or they're not sure how it really works for them and therefore a virtual captive can be a nice bridge into the establishment of a real one so you can you know for example start with having a virtual captive and then uh, establish a real captive uh, along you know along the along the timeline and then once you have it ready you can switch from the virtual captive to the real captive so that's that's the number one but then number two uh, in terms of inquiries for uh, for uh, clients who have or have decided that they want to have a captive at least is if uh, if for example they want to set up a, another vehicle so a second one or even a third one in a, maybe in, a, in another region so that's another reason for thinking about a virtual captive or such clients who, have, who believe that they would like to stop running their own captive but still maintain the mechanics or the financial mechanics of a captive and therefore move to a virtual captive. 
Thomas, I know in the uh, presentation that uh, we we have at Air McFest, you do talk a little bit more detail regarding the the financial mechanics. I'm not going to go too much into that, but just just a basic question for now is: when we talk about a virtual captive, where does this virtual captive actually sit? Is it sit as a as part of the parent company, the insured's balance sheet, or is it something that sits within? The, the Swiss Re, if it was Swiss Re facilitating it, would it be sitting in the Swiss Re balance sheet? The virtual captive sits on Swiss Re's balance sheet. So it, in the end of the day, the difference between a, a real captive or also a protected cell company, if you like, and the virtual captive is that on a, when you have a, a real captive, you have you have an ownership on a on a new balance sheet on a on a separate balance sheet. Whereas on a with a virtual captive, there is no ownership on any balance any other balance sheet. So you don't own part of Swiss Re Corporate Solutions balance sheet. But nevertheless, the mechanics are basically handled on Swiss Re's balance sheet, and the interaction between the the client and Swiss Re is. An insurance agreement. It's a multi-year insurance agreement with certain structural elements, which then emulate the mechanics of the captive. Bearing that in mind, one of one of the advantages we often hear about a lot with with having a captive is, of course, accessing the reinsurance market. Uh, does the kind of virtual captive provide that benefit as well? Is it a way that you can then access the the reinsurance market? Yes, we do have uh, at least three types of how we implement the virtual captive. And one of these types is actually that uh, the virtual captive becomes, if you like, the primary insurer. Right? We, Swiss Corporate Solutions, become the primary insurer for the client's insurance program. And behind the virtual captive, reinsurance can be bought. That is absolutely the case and one of the potential benefits of having a virtual captive this way through. So just lastly then, Thomas, does the client remain free still to choose which uh, reinsurers it wants to work with at, at higher levels above the virtual captive? This is, a, this is a very good question and the answer is also yes. It's actually a very important feature for many clients because you know, when you have a real captive, one of the key benefits is that you can access the reinsurance market with the, and, and access the reinsurers you like. So what we give uh, the client as an option with the virtual captive as well is that whilst we are, of course, uh, providing a list of acceptable reinsurers, we will uh, leave it to the client to choose which ones to take for the reinsurance behind the virtual captive. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast with guest co-host Zach Finn of Butler University. A lot of listeners, Zach, will be familiar with the student-run captive insurance company that your class devised and set up in 2017 in Bermuda, as you mentioned. For those who may not have come across the story, can you just briefly explain how it came about and what the motivation behind it was? When I got here at Butler, we needed to create an experience that, that made it even more real, made it experiential, right? And, and one of the great things about Butler is this is, you know, I think we actually were one of the first universities to innovate a student-run um, uh, endowment, you know, investment fund. And, and so this is just the kind of place where that, that kind of innovation is, is not only allowed but encouraged, right? I mean, think about it. I had to go to the CFO and general counsel's office with my dean and say, hey, guys, I got an idea. Let's, let's, let's raise 
dollars from those wonderful folks at MJ Insurance and then use their money to set up an international insurance company uh, with with 20 year olds. And, and I expected to be tossed out of the room. But what I found was is like, hey, tell us what, what would be the educational benefit? Of that? What would be our opportunities around doing that? And once you start to articulate that, what I got from the university is let's give it a try. We started on our journey and we're, and, and we're successful in doing this. But, but what it allows us to do is, you know, my, all of the softwares and all the sophomores in this school business run and operate student run businesses. That program never had risk management in it before. We now come in and do risk management training. So if you're running an essential oils business, we talk about how you don't have the personal protective equipment to be handling essential oils. We talk about where to, what a material safety data sheet is and how to learn about the chemicals you're dealing with. We talk about, you know, you can sell essential oils in a contained package, but you have to store it in a flammable liquid storage container. And by the way, we need a certificate of insurance from your supplier in case there's a product liability issue. That's amazing, right? That makes it real. They're running a business and now they're learning about some of the risk and underwriting considerations of sophomores. They're learning about certificates of insurance. So even if these students don't become insurance majors, they're going to be better business owners and professionals. Well, the people that are doing that training and doing the underwriting of those businesses are the upperclassmen insurance and risk management students. And so we're going out and they're learning. Same thing. Like, oh, we got to recommend some material safety data sheet here. We're going out and doing physical loss control inspections with engineers of buildings, finding fire extinguishers that need updated or exit lights that aren't illuminated. And, and you know, we found a leaky gas stove and an a, and a old oven in a room, you know, where our board of trustees and president meets. Maybe we saved their lives. You know, that's one of the problems with risk management. You don't get a hug for the loss that never happened. But, but, but our students can go to bed at night knowing that that loss never will happen. And, and it makes it real. It's a lot more satisfying than, you know, talking about this stuff in a textbook in a vacuum then to actually get out there and find something and then see the university not not only accept that recommendation, but do something about it. And so it's been a wonderful partnership and a laboratory for our students to not just learn about insurance, but actually work with it. I mean, we issue policies, we rate exposures, we do loss control. Um, and, and, and so that's what we've been doing in the undergraduate program for the last, um, I think, three or so years. Um, what we're doing now is we're piloting a potential expansion of our captive in our master's program. But in terms of the actual setup of the captive, the, the, presumably the students were hands-on in the feasibility study and, and, the, and choosing the domicile and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it was actually it was amazing. They did they did 99.9% of the work for the feasibility study, and they did 99.9% um, .9 of the work for, for the license application, the business plan. In fact, it was, it, was, it was funny. I'll tell the story. I don't think they'll mind. Um, but we were at the Bermuda Monetary Authority after we submitted our business plan, and, and the Minister of Finance pulled me aside. And he said, he said, Zach, this is a really great, you know, business plan. I think your students have learned a lot. It seems like a great program. He's like, just between you and me, I got to ask you, like, did they really do all this work? He's like, because he's really good. He's like, I got to tell you, I had six Fortune 500s this month, and I had to kick every one of those business plans back at least six times. And he's like, we're on the verge of improving your business plan on the first time. Did, did they really do that, or did you and you know Professor Thompson do it behind the scenes? And my answer was no, they did it. Like they really did do it. So the captive is is three years old now, as, as you mentioned. Uh, what's the actual lines of insurance that it's writing today? And and then you mentioned about the master's program. How are you looking to expand the captive and, and what kinds of uh, new lines of insurance do you think could be written in the future for it? You know, we looked at short tail coverages. We looked at predominantly first party coverages. We looked at coverages that would not have an element of privacy or personally identifiable information. For example, we would not want students, you know, adjusting a sexual molestation claim against one of their peers or by one of their peers or to one of their peers. And so we had to be, you know, and we wanted and we wanted to pick lines of coverage that frankly were, you know, we wanted to fairly have a chance of paying claims, but not necessarily be in a position where we're gonna have a lot of losses. 
So we design what we call the university package policy. And we view ourselves kind of like FM Global. We provide insurance, but that's not what our main focus is. Our main focus is on engineering and, and risk management expertise to make sure that, you know, I believe what FM Global believes. The majority of loss can be prevented through engineered solutions. And, yeah. and that's the approach we take with the captive. And then the insurance is secondary. So we insure our, our various and assorted dogs, uh, our, our live mascot, our bomb sniffing dog, and our care dog. Um, we insure the first $150,000 of our fine art an inland marine property and a lot of our science equipment. And, and, and you know, I, th- I think we're at, you know, maybe uh, 395000 or so in total limits that we have out there. Um, we have a cross-class aggregate limit. Um, you know, if we pay a full limit for the property, for the dogs, for RB, and again, we're insuring the first 50000 of liability on a deductible reimbursement for our student-run businesses. Um, we've got maybe another $45,000 of coverage on our dogs, and we've got another $150,000 coverage on our fine art. Uh, we structured the captive in such a way that if we had to pay out, you know, full policy limits across all of those, that would be it. We'd hit our aggregate limit for the year. And then we'd have to go back to the drawing board. You know, we'd have to say, geez, you know, has been going to Arby's or is there a good reason why this happened? But that's how we've run it this far. We want, we wanted coverages that could be teaching tools from a risk management perspective and that were fairly low in risk and, and liability. Now for the master's program, that's a lot more exciting. I mean, the, the undergrad is very exciting as well, but the master's is exciting in so much as we can do more. You know, we've got a really good, strong cohort of 18 uh, students in that program. We've got risk managers of Fortune 500 companies. We've got underwriters. We've got uh, uh, police sergeants. We've got all kinds of, you know, really interesting expertise on there. And what they're basically doing is they're doing a top-down analysis of Butler and our risks. And what we're doing is, you know, we're, we want to help our risk management department. Right now, like a lot of risk management departments, it's all COVID all the time. And so while our great risk manager, Austin Oldham, helps to lead the university through this COVID experience, and he's done a great job in helping our great team, we can be an extension of his risk management department. We can step in and do the broader risk identification and measurement and prioritization that he would normally be doing, but he's not able to do right now. And what we're doing is, is we're, we're, we're looking at the risks of the university from two perspectives. What are risks that aren't on our radar now that we really need to be mindful of and develop some recommendations for? And what are those recommendations? But also, what are risks that can be monetized in the capital? So, for example, we, don't, we have a guaranteed cost workers' comp program. We've got enough maintenance and employees are running around here that, you know, it probably makes sense for us to have some level of deductible, self-insured retention, full self-insurance through our workers' comp program. And so our master's students, we have loss runs, we have payroll. They're going to do that analysis. They're going to recommend a, a risk financing structure for our workers' comp program, which may or may not be in the captive. And, and, and so we're looking at ways to lower the university's total cost of risk by, by converting a part of our captive use to maybe as a more traditional risk management tool for Butler. But we're also looking at, is there an opportunity to create products down the line that we could sell to other universities? So, for example, um, um, you just did your interview for Ed Health, right? I, that was a wonderful interview. I really like listening to Tracy and her journey and, and really her journey through the feasibility study and, you know, who wants to partner with us? And I really enjoyed her comment, like, why would we want to do something like this? We had those same moments. We had those same discussions. And, and, and what she's created around a group captive with other universities for stop loss, that's the kind of thing that, you know, maybe we want to replicate that at Butler, but for another line of coverage. Maybe we want to try and join what, what, um, what Tracy's doing at Ed Health. And, and so those are the kind of things that the master students are going to be looking at. And, and then based on the recommendations that they identify, subsequent cohorts will work on the implementation of those and the ultimate, ultimate conversion into a 
more of a commercial third-party selling products insurance. Great, really interesting, Zach, and and, and fascinating to, to keep an eye out for for what is to come with with the student-run captive program. I was really interested when it, when it first emerged in in 2017, and, and definitely keeping an eye on on things as how they progress. And and that is all we have time for this week in the pod. So many thanks to our three guests, Tracy Hassett of Ed Health. Thomas Keist of Swiss Re and our guest co-host Zach Finn. Thank you, Zach. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. If you are new to the Global Captive Podcast, then please do subscribe on your podcast app of choice. We're on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Castbox, and any other pod platform that you can think of. Just search for Global Captive Podcast. Hit follow or subscribe and ensure that every new episode is downloaded straight to your device. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.